Thanks for joining us and welcome to the Reptile Living Room featuring John Taylor of Herb House Magazine and James Tindall with Cold Blooded Publishing. The Reptile Living Room is brought to you by Herb House Magazine, the premier digital magazine for the reptile hobbyist, and by Cold Blooded Publishing, your exclusive reptile media publishing company. Now, here are John and James in the Reptile Living Room. Good evening. Welcome to another broadcast of the Reptile Living Room. We're the only independently produced and distributed live reptile broadcast available today. Each week we bring you a specific panel of herpetoculture and herpetological respondents to discuss the various aspects of our community and current events impacting and affecting herpetoculture and herpetology. Reptile Living Room also brings modern day technology to our community through an interactive platform, interact with our hosts, guests, and other like-minded individuals on the Reptile Living Room YouTube channel live during the show. I am, of course, your host, John F. Taylor of Reptile Apartment Group, and would like to introduce my co-host, James Tinnell of Tremendous Tricolors over there. How you doing, James? And there's Chad, our executive producer. There he is, right there. Joining James in Florida this week. How you gentlemen doing tonight? Pretty good, man. It's been hot all week, that's for sure. <laughs> yeah, I think you said uh, Chad had a farmer's tan or something like that from going out herping for three hours? <laughs> yeah, it was quite it was quite the trip though, John. It was like ninety-eight degrees, hundred and ten percent humidity, and the sweat was just pouring off <laughs> in the kids. Oh man. And it was it was spiders galore. I was mean, it really? It's all we saw was spiders, spiders, spiders everywhere. Big ones. <laughs> Big ones. <laughs> nice. So uh, let's run through our sponsors, shall we? We shall. Let's go ahead and run through our sponsors. Um, first sponsor tonight, Her Pals Magazine. You're all digital, 99% ad-free sponsor. Um, check it out, herpalsmag.com. Definitely. We definitely got some uh, stuff coming up for a World Lizard uh, celebration also in, in the next issue. We have Abronia and uh, Reptile Feeding Conundrums. There's just all kinds of stuff happening in this next issue, and uh, some new designs are going to be added, uh, some new design work and things of that nature, so definitely check it out. Like James said, herpousemag.com, and uh, I think there's a couple discount codes uh, running around out there, too, if you guys know who to talk to. <laughs> and then, of course, we have uh, Tremendous Tricolors, uh, as always, great sponsor. Uh, I heard Chad picked up one of my favorite snakes this weekend. Not really too happy about that, but, you know, at least one of us got one, so I guess I can't be too upset at Chad for it. You get one soon, buddy. <laughs> that, that's what happens when you visit the breeder. Yeah, yeah, I know. You can cherry pick everything. <laughs> yeah. Oh, man. Poor, poor Chad was like, uh, can you start adding this up for me? For <laughs> my budget. Because I want everything. I about tripled my budget. Yeah, I can imagine. And you haven't even been to Daytona yet. Yeah, I know. That's just brutal. I think that classifies as cruel and unusual punishment, doesn't it? Yeah. <laughs> Pretty much. <laughs> I'll take it every day. Oh, Especially when you keep on opening up tubs and you keep seeing brand new stuff hatching. So, you know, like yesterday I had uh, 
my youngest daughter and Chad stand on either side of the table, and I said, all right, everybody catch the running snakes because they're just going to flood out of this bucket. And that's Chad. There's like <laughs> snakes in that tub, and they just all came out at once, and we were just picking them up, putting them in a five-gallon bucket. Oh, man, unreal. And then squirt them all out afterwards. Yeah, exactly. Nice. You know, yeah. speaking of sorting it out, uh, our other sponsor, Happy Gecko Sticky Situation with uh, Rachel Winchin. Did you see those uh, photographs that she posted of her uh, number one fan? No, I didn't. The, uh, on Facebook, it's like the entire refrigerator is just covered. I don't, I don't know if there's actually a refrigerator behind the magnets. They claim that there is, but I don't think there is. I think it's just a wall of magnets that you know is on the wall. But uh, she does also, I think she's getting into t-shirts now and uh, just doing a heck of a lot of killer artwork and stuff like that. Um, who else do we have for sponsors, Jimmy? We got another sticker maker and artist, and I noticed and she just came out with a fat tail gecko, and that's Natalyn Bieto, and that's at reptilearts.com. So check it out, Natalyn. Um, shout out to you. Great work, and uh, keep it up. Definitely. And then we have uh, also Reptiles Express, uh, your number one shipping for anything reptilian related. Uh, they do shipping uh, even into Canada, uh, as you've heard on our guest show uh, from David Twine Geckos uh, over there at the Gecko Nation. That's right. Uh, Reptiles Express. Definitely uh, check them out. And we've actually done the math. Uh, actually, James, uh, James did the math. And we figured out that even with the competitors' 40% off coupons, on most things uh, shipped through Reptiles Express, you actually save money, even with the competitor's 40% off coupon. So that goes to show you something. Absolutely. And the next one up, we have the Herp Keeper from Digital Aquatics. Um, great little unit there. John, have you tried yours out yet? I'm hooking mine. I've had mine hooked up for a little while. We're still playing with it. Um, Definitely going to release a full review of the product itself. Uh, basically, it's everything you ever wanted in temperature control device, all wrapped up into one small unit that uh, is completely expandable. It's so far, it's done nothing but wonders for us, and it's a really interesting unit. Interested to see what other modules they come out with, because uh, they have ones for lights, temperature, um, all kinds of different settings that you can play with, and you know, you can really get down to you know, like sunset to or sunrise to sunset in the lighting and stuff like that. It's just a really interesting product. So definitely look for a full review uh, coming out in Herp House Mag as well as probably Reptile Apartment. Uh, we'll also have a full review on that product. Great. And talking about little units, we have the Tempo um, by Blue Maestro. It's a temperature uh, instrument that measures temperature, and they have humidity and barometric pressure added to them now. So check out the Tempo by Blue Maestro. Um, we'll also have a review of that coming up on reptileapartment.com as well as Herp House Mag. So um, I've been using that for a few months now in my incubation uh, chamber. Works great. Keeps me up to date of what the temps are and uh, all to my smartphone. So works great. That's uh, Tempo by Blue Maestro. And, John, we got one more, and that's the Dragon Lair. Yep. And the Dragon Lair is what, John? You want to tell our audience? Yeah, they're a Canadian company that's uh, basically your number one uh, Canadian reptile outfitter, literally. Um, 
if you're if you live in the uh, any of the Canadian provinces, there's just no better place to shop online for anything reptile uh, reptile products. They've always got incredible discounts going on on their lighting, um, various food products, and they also do a, uh, some limited captive breeding of some more of the uh, rare species of reptiles that you don't see every day out there. So definitely check them out, uh, thedragonlayer.ca. Uh, of course, all of our sponsors will be listed in the show notes and uh, clickable banners in the uh, ad showcase, I believe, as well. Is that correct, James? That's correct. If you're viewing us on G+, you'll be seeing the showcase. And uh, I have all our sponsors in there, so you can go ahead and just click the links. They should be on the right-hand side of the video. And you'll get to see some of the pictures. Just click the links, take you right through our show sponsors. So, and that's only if you're watching us on G+. And talk about that. The first one I have up there for everybody is David's Fine Geckos. And that goes into our actual uh, guest for tonight. So let's introduce him because this is World Lizard Day. And World Lizard Day, we are covering a lizard, leopard geckos. It's everything leopard geckos tonight. So, David is from David's Fine Geckos. He creates some really unusual leopard geckos and really cool ones. You can check out David on Facebook. Um, he also has a radio show as well called De Gecko Nation Radio. So, that's on Blog Talk Radio. So that's on Sunday night. So, make sure if you're free Sunday night. And, David, correct me, it's 8 o'clock Sunday nights? Yep, 8 o'clock Eastern, yep. So, 8 o'clock Eastern, check him out, Blog Talk Radio. And let's welcome David to the show. David, how are you doing tonight? Uh, doing great, James. Thank you very much, John and Chad, for having me tonight. Um, it actually feels feels good not to be on the spot as the host. I'm <laughs> a, lot, a lot more relaxed. It's, it's definitely a, a different feeling altogether. Welcome to the show, David. Good to have you on, man. Thank and you, you know, I just got to compliment you on some of those geckos you've been posting lately. You. It's been a really long time since I've ever kept leopard geckos, um, you know, because most of my stuff back in the States when I was there was just rescues and stuff like that. Man, some of the – and I've been to, you know, Canadian shows and U.S. shows, and I've seen a ton of leopard geckos. You're producing some screamers, man. That, that, last, bat, that last round that I, uh, was posted on reptileapartment.com, there was a couple in there that I just – man, it's such a shame they were already sold. Those things were so beautiful. And that's one of the things we want to get into tonight with you is talking about the genetics and, you know, how you figure all this stuff out. Because, I mean, how many geckos do you actually have now? Have you ever actually counted? Quite a bit now, John. I think, <laughs> I'm, I think I'm up to, uh, I think with this year's babies, I think we're close to 1,000 now. So that's the most I've ever had. And, you know, I appreciate the compliments. I also have to say, though, that a lot of the, uh, genetics have been in development for decades now by other breeders like Ron Tremper, uh, Marsha McGinnis, people like that. So, you know, I guess, I mean, over the last five years or so, I've been really focusing on, you know, the looks and the, the lines that I'm trying to perfect, or what I call perfection in my eyes. And uh, so, yeah, I mean, it's an ongoing process. The way they look this year, they're going to probably look even better next year. It's just, we just continually, as breeders, that's what we do. We try to continually improve with selective breeding. So, Right. Now, speaking of breeding, how did you begin breeding reptiles in the first place? Um, well, breeding reptiles kind of... When I first started as a kid, I'm 38, 
uh, when we were when I was a kid, you know, at eight years old, I got my first uh, my first uh, lizards and hermit crabs and such. And back then, herpetoculture was kind of like just just starting out, and we were you know just trying to keep stuff alive. And we kind of had like stamp collections of reptiles. We had one of everything. Uh, nowadays, it's more about breeding. So over the last five years, I, I just really took a serious interest in leopard geckos because of all the different colors and patterns we have available. And I said, well, you know, these are one of the easiest uh, lizard species to breed. I might as well give it a shot. And, you know, when I do something, I do it 100%. And that's basically what I did. I set out to breed the best possible leopard geckos that I could afford. And, uh, you know, if you put the time and energy into it and do everything, you know, the best that you can, you're going to see some, some incredible results. And I think, uh, I think I'm off to some really good projects here. Yeah, definitely. From, from the stuff that I've seen, man, you know, I don't see that stuff anywhere else, um, either online or offline. Like I said, I've been to a ton of reptile shows and stuff like that. So was this one of the first species that you actually kept as far as reptiles? or? Um, actually, the first species were green anoles and uh, curly tail lizards. You know, and uh, from there, I did go on to garter snakes and then eventually uh, leopard geckos. I first bred leopard geckos when I was about 15 years old, I believe it was. You know, 15 or 16. Um, and we just had normals back then, of course. Uh, they were pretty normal, so people were getting some color on them. You know, they had some nice, uh, nice purplish lavender tones in them, and nice yellow, high yellow, of course. But uh, yeah, those are the leopard geckos were the first lizards I ever bred. So very cool. And it's interesting. You said you kept the gnolls as well. Yeah, gnolls were my first, uh, first lizard. Nice, James. Didn't you just do an article on uh, the green gnolls for a reptile apartment? I did. I did. Just the basic uh, green anole, talking yep. about uh, the new subspecies and uh, of green anoles and how it was, you know, how it was named, and so it was a short little piece, probably about 900 words, but uh, that was published probably Monday. Since we've been doing everything reptile apartment-wise for World Lizard Day, everything's been lizards for uh, reptile apartments. So. Yeah, tonight, as a matter of fact, speaking of World Lizard Day and uh, you know the other lizards that we're talking about, uh, our executive producer over there, big hat tip to him for uh, tonight's uh, premier article on chameleons. Uh, he came up with the title over there. Uh, James and I were talking back and forth about the chameleon article and how to title it and whatnot. And you know, Chad was over there uh, promoting the show and whatnot, and he just leans over and he says, "Hey, what about catch the rainbow?" and you could have heard a pin drop, you know, or taste the rainbow, sorry. And uh, you could have heard a pin drop. I mean, both James and I are just like, what the heck, dude? You're like the silent Bob over there. You don't say anything, and then you just come in and you're just like, bam, there it is. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, thanks again, Chad. That was awesome, man. I appreciate that. <laughs> and back to you, David. Um, why do you keep reptiles versus, you know, like rabbits or, you know, mice or, you know, stuff? What happened to the cute and cuddly stuff? Oh, I have the cute and cuddly stuff. I have my little chihuahua sitting right over here. Um, oh, nice. Yeah. Now the cute and cuddly stuff is cool, too. I, You know, I think um, I, I've thought about it long and hard about what is so appealing about reptiles. And 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 I believe that it's a shame more people haven't discovered them as, as pets because there's something 
about reptiles that they're they're so so interesting that they almost don't seem real. Like when I look at my geckos and snakes and I see all these different colors on even on the stuff James is producing, these crazy coolabrids and stuff and milk snakes. Um, to me they kinda look they kinda look like they're not alive, like they're mechanical. They're like little pieces of candy in a lot of cases. Like my my little geckos hatch out and they're like bubblegum pink and they look like something that you could eat and it would taste really good, right? Yeah, but exactly. They don't seem like it's it I, I'm trying to describe it the best I can, but to me it's like, you know, there's something very, very different and special about reptiles. And to narrow it down with the leopard gecko is the leopard gecko in my opinion is the perfect reptile pet and it's you know, that's just my opinion. I could appreciate other people's feelings about snakes and ball pythons and whatever they like. Sure. But um, to me, leopard geckos, you know, you can you can buy a, a really impressive leopard gecko project, get a few animals, and within a year, you're breeding those geckos. And then you're going to see the results of your efforts within a year usually. And then you're off the very next season. You're off onto the next step. And uh, it's like very fast-paced. So anybody that's got ADD out there, and wants to breed something real quick and, and see your results, leopard geckos are the way to go. Definitely. Nice. That, yeah. you know, that brings up a good topic, David, because um, a lot of people are seeing um, herpeticulture take a... And it's always been this way, and I'm sure James will comment on this, as far as the get-rich-quick thing. You know, mm, everybody yeah. wants to get rich quick, so they go in, invest, you know, four or five hundred bucks in a, you know a bunch of colubrids, a bunch of geckos, a bunch of all pythons, whatever, and then they expect to get rich in the next season. Mm -hmm. You know, do you find that as well, or do you think that's kind of slowing down nowadays, or? Um, I don't know. I think there's always that type of mentality. I think, though, that those people kind of, I think, kind of like how the earth kind of regulates itself, I think yep. the, mar the market regulates that, because... Um, if you don't have the passion for this, if you don't have it in you, if you don't have it in your blood to do this, you're you're not going to last. You're because you, you're not going to be able to weather those times where you're not making any money, and that's it. Just like you know, those people will come and go. And even in even in my five years where I've been doing it on a serious level, um, I've seen a a few people come and go. That you know they come out strong, like oh I got this this and this, and they they make a lot of noise. Some of them are really aggressive, and they you know. They they come they they come out aggressive and just you know really trying to promote themselves and I think they burn out because they short they realize soon enough that that especially now with the economy now is not the time I don't think to really make a killing but I do feel that this has the potential to become huge and I I know herpetoculture is is getting growing it's growing there's there's steady growth but. If it could, if it were to become more mainstream, there'd be limitless buyers, limitless business opportunities, and it's just I I feel like it's teetering, it's like teetering right on the edge of going mainstream sometimes. And then the other part of me is like, all right, well, with all this legislation going on, um, we're like teetering on the edge of, you know, going into, you know, just the abyss and. Uh, so it's kind of like, well, what's going to happen? And you know, I guess I could pose that question to you guys. What do you think is going to happen? 
Yeah, I'd like to. Uh, I like what James had to say because he and I were talking about this the other day in regards to, um, you know, where herpeticulture is going as far as the economy and, uh, you know, because everybody wants to jump on the ball python thing, you know, and bash all the ball python breeders about, you know, trying to make it rich and not making it this, that, and the other thing. And James brought up a good point of, you know, the colubrid market went through the same thing, you know, a number of years back where everybody was breeding colubrids and then everybody's, you know, stopped and went to the next project. You know, it's just a cyclical thing, I think. Is that about accurate, James, or did I totally misquote you in that one? <laughs> well, absolutely. I mean, uh, <coughs> herpeticulture is no different than any other business. You have an ebb and flows. You have highs and lows. Um, you can go on six-year cycles. You can go on 11-year cycles. You can go on 25-year cycles or 101-year cycles. Um, each, each business is going to have some sort of cycle to it. And each one will have highs and lows within it. It's just herpeticulture has so many different animals and so many different people, types of people working with them. So, you know, the ebb and flow of herpeticulture will come and go. I mean, are we going to see heyday highlights like the 1990s were in the early 2000s? Maybe. Maybe not. But, you know, but it's going to flow. It, it started with snakes, and then, you you know, you're seeing... Leopard geckos and bearded dragons, and those started back in the 90s and, you know, late 80s as well. So it, it's just an evolving thing business-wise, and I don't see our pediculture ever going anywhere at all. I just think it's going to flow, keep going through its highs and lows. It, it'll beat all this legislation. We'll get it done. We'll be able to, you know, keep pretty much what we have. Um because we're right on top of it. I mean, Uzark's helped us out a lot. John and I, you know, continue to do stuff. Dave, you're involved. You know, the more people we get involved in and in putting on, you know, videos and, and radio shows and getting the word out and the good word out, it, it's just going to continue. The, the people that are going to make it are the ones, like Dave said, that have it in their blood that that's what they want to do. No matter how much money they make, no matter how, how much money they lose, this is what I want to do. And those are the people that make it. And we've seen it with the likes of Ron Tremper. I mean, what is he, 25, 30 years in, Dave? More than I think he's close to 35 or, you know, cresting that. So. Yeah. So, I mean, you look, you look at him. You look at Robert Al Applegate. I mean, <laughs> down there in the 70s. So, I mean, and, and now he's looking, you know, he's kind of a little bit off the radar for the Kluber market. But, you know, He's still selling snakes, and, and yeah. you know, going 40 years ago. So, it, not everybody's going to make it the whole 40 years. You're going to have those individuals, and what it is is those individuals are the ones that's going to say, "Well, I broke even this year. Next year, I lost money. The year before that, I hit it big." So, you're going to have those years, and uh, you know, I see it in the Kluber market too. We're finally the first generation of retirees coming around. Absolutely. Like yeah. Chad just said, you know, we're we're looking at the first generation of retirees in herpeticulture. You know, we're a fresh we're a fresh hobby. Yeah. All things considered, we're fresh. I mean stamp collecting started back in the late eighteen hundreds. So, yeah. you know, that's a hundred and twenty, hundred and thirty years old. So, you know? In it, a lot of ways we're just getting started. Absolutely. Yep. I couldn't agree more. Now, speaking about the legislation, uh, to both of you gentlemen, um, why do you, 
David, we'll start with you. Why do you think people actually fear reptiles? Well, I mean, that's, I mean, I kind of, it's, it's basically ignorance. They don't understand them, of course, you know. Human nature is we fear things we don't understand, and, um, of course, there's just that old stigma to them, and it just goes back so long in human history where reptiles have gotten a bad rap, of course, and, you know, the, every, I think it's our duty and it's our responsibility, all of us, that are keeping reptiles or that love them, that have an interest in reptiles, that we need to, any chance we can, we need to work to dispel the myths that are out there about them and to uh, show them in a positive way and, and help people understand uh, their beauty the way we do. And, I mean, that's, sometimes other people aren't, don't understand really how to do that, um, but if you're enthusiastic enough, the most easiest thing you can do is if you have a, a little lizard or a snake or something, the easiest thing you could do is start a little YouTube channel. And, you know, then you're you're automatically putting your enthusiasm out there for some other people to see. And I don't know how many people have gotten involved in leopard geckos because of my videos and other breeders' videos because it's been so effective. YouTube as a tool for herpetoculture has been so effective. So, you know, as far getting back to your question, though, as, as far as, like, what it is that people fear about them, I mean, I mean, I mean, let's be honest, guys. I mean, some of the things that reptiles do is pretty extreme and to some people gross. I mean, snakes eating live rodents, not everybody's going to go for that. Um, right. You know, it's just, it's tough. And you know what? There's, just like anything else, there's always going to be people that there's going to be people that will just never get it. You know, they'll never get bit by the reptile bug like we have. Um, but if we don't expose people to them in a positive way, we're never going to be able to awaken those that that have this interest in them for reptiles that they just haven't discovered yet. So, you know, we kind of keep doing our responsibility to, you know, share our enthusiasm and do it in a positive way. Right. Now, I'd like to just say one yeah. other thing. One other thing that kind of, and this isn't my opinion, you guys can take it or leave it out there. Um, I feel that reptile feeding videos on YouTube can be detrimental to us because, of course, yes, our animals have to eat, and I understand that. I think by showing, you know, frogs and snakes eating live rodents, um, it hurts us in a sense because there are people out there that really don't want to see that. And um, the more we show those videos, the more it angers people that don't already like reptiles. And then those types of people can then get on the bandwagon um, that are, you know, with the other folks that are trying to, you know, squash herpetoculture. So I would just ask everyone to think about that, what I just said, and, and, and think if it's really necessary to post a lot of reptile feeding videos. So. No, I, and I appreciate that, uh, David. I, I couldn't agree with you more. Uh, James and I have talked about, you know, even company names uh, sometimes these days you know, can impact how someone outside of herpeticulture would view uh, herpeticulture, you know, if that's their first encounter. You know, some of the names are pretty pretty wild, you know, as far as, it's like, you know, Vicious, I mean, and I'm making this up. I'm sorry if there is a company out there called Vicious Vipers, but... <laughs> oh, 
Oh, I'd know. like to tell you a couple right now, but I don't want to send everybody listening to their. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. Exactly. Now, getting back to the uh, leopard gecko thing, this is kind. Of, the leopard geckos are kind of like uh, the milk snakes and corn snakes of the snake realm, as far as an introductory species. To my knowledge, they've at least in two magazines that I know of have been voted number one reptile for beginners or number one reptile for kids. And that's something I wanted to ask you. What age range would you recommend to get started in reptiles, uh, you know, as a child? And then when would, when, at what age would they start to actually take care of and own a reptile with little intervention from mom and dad? Right. Good question. Yeah, I think, uh, I think John, that it, as far as owning, if there is parental supervision, owning any, you know, a leopard gecko or a, a safe reptile, I, I don't think there is an age limit for that. I mean, you know, if you're if you're a responsible adult and you're um, taking care of the pet, I think any any child would be fascinated. And I think exposing to ch uh, children to them in a positive way is a good thing, especially you know early on, because then they'll grow up without that innate fear of them uh, of the reptiles. Uh, but yeah, as far as someone owning like a leopard gecko on their own, I would say that um, I don't know, maybe. You know, when I when I first started keeping them, I was pretty responsible at like eight and ten years old. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I think so, I think a, a kid around that age could handle it. Now, the good thing about leopard geckos is, uh, you can get involved with leopard geckos as a beginner and really enjoy them. But there also is a lot about leopard geckos that's just fascinating for advanced keepers. And um, we have bloodlines and specific uh, gecko types and morphs that. Um, are just there for the serious collector and serious hobbyist. <laughs> yeah, and I mean that's and that's what I breed. I breed, you know, really nice leopard geckos that are there for the advanced keeper. Now they're not advanced in the sense where they're very difficult to keep. They're just advanced in the sense where they're they're less common than the run of the mill leopard geckos. Yeah, this isn't this isn't just the you know high yellow leopard gecko that you're going to pick up for you know twenty nine ninety nine over at the big box pet stores. Right. You right. know where when you come to you know David's fine geckos, the name says it all. Right. You know, I want to breed fine geckos. Absolutely. <laughs> you know you're you're coming into a you know a class establishment and you're buying rare reptiles. You know and uh, back to the kids thing. James can speak to this uh, specifically because he does have two young daughters that are very involved in uh, Tremendous Tricolors um, insofar as I think they actually have their own snakes and almost like their own mini collection that dad kind of maintains and you know they get to play with all the time. Yeah. So James, how did you get uh, your kids involved in herpeticulture? Easy. Just expose them to it. I mean it was a uh... I kept them. They were very interested. They come in the room. They look into the tubs. I guess my youngest and, and Chad could probably attest because we we were out here just setting up babies for four or five hours last night. Yeah. But um, my youngest, she started probably about five or six years old, and she would help me separate babies. And that's all she would do. She'd reach in the bucket. She'd hand me the next. <laughs> I'd stack it. I'd put it away. Boom! It was done. And then she got involved into wanting to feed them. So that was her job. Every Saturday morning when I went in and spot cleaned or fed the collection, her job was to open up all the babies and put the pinkies on the towels inside the tubs. Um, that evolved into changing water bowls and helping out. But, you know, now that she's 
more towards the middle of elementary school. School's really putting a lot of a lot of work on her. So her interest yeah. into the collection isn't as high as it was when she was in you know kindergarten, first grade, second grade. Sure. But you know, anytime I have them out in you know the living room, kitchen, friends over or whatever, she's right there. There, there. You know, she's like that dog that <laughs> she's right there. She wants to tell everybody what she knows. So right, there's a lot. And she's great. I mean, she's she found herself in the block eye yesterday. And, oh my gosh! And she named named it Marvin, and <laughs> all she wrote. So now she's got another pet. But uh, awesome. And my oldest daughter, I mean, she likes tortoises and turtles, you know. And, and the cuddly furry things is more her game. Right. But, you know, she's just not big into into snakes, but you know, to each their own. Yeah, for sure. And Chad, your son's into reptiles big time with you too. Oh, absolutely. He loves it. Um, he likes going out and doing. Uh, not too big on the care of them, you know. I got to do most of that, but he likes going out and uh, when I do presentations at schools, he's in right there with me. You know, I don't care. He'll be real shy one on one, even with his grandparents or any adult. But when he's in a group of kids that are older than him, he's got no problem telling them to shut up and pay attention and. Um, teaching about reptiles. That's awesome, man. And David, uh, back over to you now. Um, as far as the leopard geckos are concerned, one of the things that really got my attention regarding the leopard geckos when I first got into herpeticulture was living in an apartment setting and being able to keep reptiles. Mm -hmm. You know, I obviously couldn't keep, you know, a 20-foot Burmese python in a two-bedroom apartment. Um, I actually kept an 18-foot Burmese python in a two-bedroom apartment once. <laughs> that was it. <laughs> Never again will I do that. Um, but leopard geckos and, uh, you know, tend to uh, lend themselves to smaller spaces, if I'm not mistaken. If you could talk to our viewers about that a little bit. They're perfect for apartments. If you live in an apartment and you're looking for uh, just a perfect reptile for that setting, you'll be very happy with leopard geckos. And... Uh, I mean, for instance, you can keep an adult leopard gecko in a. Uh, some people can get away with it in a 10-gallon tank. Some of the because some of the leopard geckos don't get that big, but sometimes you can get a male that'll get pretty robust. So a 15-gallon or a 20-long would be perfect for it. Uh, even if you're even if you wanted to breed them on a small scale, you could you could have rack systems in one of your apartment rooms that take up little just very small amounts of space and you could actually start your own little breeding operation from that from that uh, type of environment and uh, if you, if that's what you want to do then more power to you um, in these rack systems today are they don't take up a lot of room they don't take up a lot of electricity they're pretty efficient and uh, you know the only drawback to a rack system though is you don't really get that visual uh, you know that aesthetic you know, if you have like you know a nice terrarium or something set up, you don't have that visual effect from from a rack system. But you know, with a rack system, it's more about efficiency, space, and being able to keep more animals for breeding purposes. But um, you know, mo a lot of gecko species actually would be perfect for apartment setting. So I guess you have to decide where you are, where you're going with it. If you're looking to breed and um, you know produce different geckos if you want to have that experience with incubating eggs and watching them uh, you know produce young and stuff that's that's a different scenario so you got to figure out what you want to do 
But, yeah, you know, because I look at your stuff, um, or at least the stuff that you're releasing to the public anyway, because I've, I've seen a couple of behind-the-scenes stuff that you guys haven't seen yet, and, you know, yeah, I'm just but, saying. <laughs> Keep waiting, guys. It's coming. But uh, one of my favorites is, I believe it's called the Black Holes, or Black Hole uh, Leopard Gecko that you uh, are working with currently. They're cool, yeah. Man, I would love to have a pair of those. In a really nice leopard gecko, you know, like you said, a vivarium, the whole desert scenario with some cactus and stuff, mm-hmm. you know. And your stuff is what I what I would refer to as collector species. You know, yeah. this isn't something you just, you know, buy, throw in a ten gallon, and you know, call it good. This is something you set up that this is what you bring the neighbors over to see. You know, is this really cool gecko that I got in this really cool vivarium? You know, and this is where I got it, and you know, the whole nine yards. Yep. And now, as far as setting them up, take us through a leopard gecko setup, if you will. Okay. Um, well, it's it's really simple, and uh, I guess I'll describe the typical um, fish tank uh, style setup. And for those of you out there, people that are um, thinking about starting out with leopard geckos, I would encourage you to try not to buy from that big chain pet store the fifteen dollar gecko as your first pet. Um, only reason why, the, I mean, a lot of those geckos will make great pets, but if you can save up a little bit of money uh, to buy a quality gecko from a good breeder, you're going to have a much better experience. Uh, you're going to have the le- less likelihood of the animal being sick and needing veterinary care, um, and you're going to get a much prettier gecko right from the beginning, and it's going to be guaranteed healthy. Most of us respectable breeders go out of our way to make sure your first experience owning leopard geckos is a good one. Um, you know, you don't always get that guarantee from a pet store. So that being said, once you acquire your animal, well, actually before you acquire the animal, I encourage everybody to at least uh, buy a a book on leopard geckos so you can read about the care requirements ahead of time and know what you're doing because to do it under the gun either right the day you're going to go buy that tank and everything and then you're scrambling online messaging me and other breeders, what do I need to, for this, Dave? And, you know, if I'm busy, I'm not going to get back to you. Um, you know, you, to, if you have that book, you're going to know what to do. And I'll give a quick plug here for Ron Tremper's uh, book, Leopard Gecko's The Next Generation. And he also have an, has an app called Leopard Gecko Care. At least uh, get that book and get that app, folks, so you know what you need ahead of time. Um, then I would suggest it just... Uh, if you're first starting out, get yourself a 10-gallon tank, a 15-gallon tank. Um, don't buy sand. Uh, pet store is going to try to sell you sand. Sand is not a good idea with leopard geckos. It can cause impaction. It can get in their eyes. It can cause a bunch of different issues. And people will say, well, they live in the desert. Well, they not really. They live in rocky outcroppings and stuff. It's not technically not full desert sand that they're living on. They're actually more living in rock crevices and stuff, so they're not burying themselves in sand. So that being said, uh, I would use as a substrate, uh, the best thing actually is paper towel. I mean, it's clean, it's, uh, it's it's just perfect. It just does what it needs to do. It's not the most aesthetically pleasing uh, substrate, but if, you, if you're going for uh, something that's going to make your terrarium look really cool, then I would suggest either getting... Um, I like linoleum. You can go to Home Depot and get uh, some remnants or scrap pieces of linoleum that kind of look like rocks. They have some really pretty ones that look like marble and stuff like that. 
you can get a nice piece, cut it to the size of your tank, and you're good to go. Another thing you're definitely going to need is a heat pad. You want to keep one side of that tank at around 90 degrees, and uh, that's going to be important. Um, a lot of times you can buy that, that heat pad at the pet store, but um, uh, you know you, you want to try to get a better one. And uh, ultratherm heat mats are really good. Uh, but you also want to have them on a thermostat in a lot of cases because a thermostat will regulate that temperature properly. When you're using electrical products, folks, don't skimp on that. Make sure you're using the best, you know, the high-quality electrical stuff because you want to have that peace of mind. And uh, other than that, they really don't need lighting because they are nocturnal. So any kind of light source on top doesn't need to emit heat. Um, it would be more for your viewing uh, pleasure. You're, you know, something fluorescent perhaps you guys can use or even LED now. The LED bulbs are really cool and give off a really cool looking lighting effect so that could be a good option for you. And then uh, of course food. I like to feed the mealworms out of a bowl. They'll eat them as they feel like eating them and um, have a shallow water dish as well. That That's always good. Make sure you clean the water dish every day or so. It has to be kept clean. You don't want bacteria building up in there and uh, most important thing, though, for leopard geckos is vitamins and calcium supplementation. Okay, and if you mix, I recommend RepCal, RepCal uh, calcium with vitamin D3, and then RepCal Herptivite. And you can actually buy those two products and mix them together 50-50 and put them in like a little um, lid to a jar or something in their cage. And you could just put a little layer or so of that in there, and the geckos will lick it up as they feel they need it. Uh, so you don't necessarily have to dust it on their mealworms. Some people like to dust it, but uh, you know it's not necessary in all cases because the geckos know, what, know when they need that stuff. But that in a nutshell is just the basic care requirements, folks. Very cool. Very cool stuff. I tried to oh. do that as quickly as possible. <laughs> no worries. <laughs> Excuse me. Now as far as um, you said they don't need any UV at all, huh? No, 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 no UV for leopard geckos. They're not like a dragon, bearded dragon, or or others like iguanids and stuff. Um, now they're they're a nocturnal species, so they do most of their hunting at night. In fact, um, a lot of people are are kind of find it comical that as soon as the lights go off, their geckos are out moving around, making noise, knocking stuff over in their <laughs> in their tanks, and yeah, they're kind of uh, you know frisky at night. So <laughs> frisky at night. <laughs> I, yeah, I'm not even going to go there. <laughs> you can find a joke in there somewhere, John. Yeah, I'm sure we could. I'm sure we could. <laughs> and I think I featured uh, in that uh, Green and Knoll article, I think there was a photograph that uh, featured Green and Knoll's mating over there. Now, um, aggressive when they mate, I think, right? Yeah, yeah. Now, speaking of breeding, um, as far as take us through the steps of, you know, if someone wanted to start off uh, breeding the uh, leopard gecko, mm -hmm. what do we need? I mean, outside the obvious of, you know, male and female. Because right. um, you always hear people talk about, yes, harem breeding. No, don't do harem breeding. You should never do harem breeding because it over, you know, you hear a lot of stories. What, as an expert on leopard geckos, uh, talk to us about what it takes. Well, I wouldn't consider myself an expert because I'm learning something every day. But I, I think I know what I'm doing now after, you know, a bunch of seasons breeding them. 
But uh, I gotta be a little humble there. I'm not an expert, though, John. Um, but yeah, uh, you know, I, there's a lot involved with breeding anything, and you know, we could do several hours of discussion on it. But you know, I'll give like a brief overview here for folks, um, you know, that want to breed animals. Of course, you can breed any gecko. You can go to that corner pet store and breed any gecko together, and uh, especially with leopard geckos, it's if you do your homework at a time and you have a good incubator and you um, you've researched the different steps involved you should be okay and you should have a good experience uh, breeding them however animals don't always do what we expect them to do they're not robots so they don't always sometimes you'll get a pair of geckos that just doesn't want to breed and uh, Did we lose him? I think he froze up. Yeah, I see he's not even on the line. Um, well, let's dude. get him back on. Yeah. Um, he's on Facebook. Mm -hmm. Let me see if uh, we can't get David back on here. Um, yeah, that's really strange. <laughs> yeah, he, like, died. Anyway... So let's get into, uh, while we see if we can get David back on, let's go ahead and... Um... So as far as uh, World Lizard Day, Jimmy, since we're on, you know, talking about lizards and stuff like that, what are some of the lizards that you've kept over the years? Actually, my first lizard was a leopard gecko. That was, was my... Was really? Yeah, I, I bred leopard geckos probably at 17. Um, I only bred them for about a year. I had a, just a single pair, pair male and female. Mm -hmm. um, I went from those, and then I kind of got into uh, day geckos, bearded dragons, and pictus geckos. So those were pretty much the only geckos I actually got into. But I did keep Schneider skinks and fire skinks for a while as well. Oh, so very cool. You know, I had a little bit of wide range. I was kind of playing around with everything in herpetoculture at that time, which a lot of us do. When we first get in, we always were like, wow, we like this, and we like that, and we like this. So I was playing around with a lot of lizard species, and uh, along with snake species, before I kind of settled into my little uh, Lampropeltis triangulum or Lampropeltis realm. What about you, John? I know you keep your aromastics because you wrote the book on it, but... Um, <laughs> What else did you keep lizard-wise? Yeah, most of my stuff was uh, leopard geckos and bearded dragons, which were mostly rescues, um, because basically the shops that I worked at, um, as I'm sure you've experienced too at the shops you've worked at, is a great place to drop off unwanted animals. So, of course, you know we couldn't resell these ones to the public because we had no idea where they came from, any of the you know health background, we had nothing to go on. So always went to, you know, whatever employee had room to keep them at their house. And I lived in a two-bedroom apartment, so... Oh, I think we got David back. Possibly. We're working on it. I see him coming through. <laughs> I feel like Willy Wonka. <laughs> Can you guys hear me? There he is. All right. I don't All know right, what happened. Sir. It just totally booted me. Sorry. Oh, no that. worries. It happens. We were talking. I'll just pick up where I left off if you want. Yeah, that'd be awesome. Thank you. Uh, okay. Uh, yeah, we were talking about breeding and stuff. 
Um, folks, the, number one, buy a book and read it. Okay, very important. Buy a book on leopard geckos. You're not whoa, 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 whoa. Did you just say buy a book? Yes, I did. Why would I want to do that? <laughs> why? <laughs> <laughs> I know, there's a lot of people saying, why would I want to do that? Exactly. Um, you know what? Because in, in the book, it's going to have like a reader like Ron Tremper's experience and uh, real knowledge. I mean, you're going to find a lot of information online, folks, that may or may not be right right or correct. There it is. That's there you go, first, Ron. <laughs> that's his first book. That book's worth about 500 bucks right there. Yeah. So, yeah, keep that in good shape, John. Oh, yeah, I do. Trust me. This is on my uh, Nobody Touch the Shelf book, bookshelf. Good, good. And uh, But anyway, once you, once you definitely uh, feel confident in what you're doing and you have the right equipment, um, my suggestion is to invest in the best genetics that you can find. And most people, uh, when they first decide they want to breed leopard geckos, are probably just going to breed normal leopard geckos that they got at, you know, the big chain pet store. And uh, that's fine, but don't expect to be able to sell those geckos for anything more than 10 or $15. If you're looking to, at some point, you're not going to be able to keep all of your offspring. So this kind of herpetoculture breeding reptiles kind of forces you to almost become a a little business and once you get into that spot you're into marketing you're into advertising you're into all different areas of uh, just business that you never normally were perhaps maybe you work with somebody else and you're not you don't know anything about business um, but marketing your your offspring uh, is very difficult if they if if you can't prove where those genetics came from or if you if they aren't from a, a a good lineage and so I suggest folks do your research on who's got the best geckos that you can afford and invest in the best that you can and uh, and you know what a lot of us breeders have been working really hard to produce to make these lines as bulletproof as we can so that you know you're not going to get a gecko that needs to go to the vet all the time they'll the chances of it getting sick are going to be greatly diminished. Um, you know, we selectively breed our animals now. We always pick the strongest and go from there, and we keep breeding the strongest together. So it's kind of like, I know some people relate it to eugenics in a lot of ways, but um, it's it's like anything else, though. You know, you like dog breeds and horse breeds. You have thoroughbreds, and you have really, you know, top lineage animals. Um that's what we do. We try to make amazing animals. And folks, you're going to want to do that too. And you're going to want to make the best geckos you can. And with leopard geckos, they do it for you. They're so easy that they make that first experience breeding reptiles very easy. And in fact, a lot of people that breed a lot of really exotic geckos and exotic reptiles had their start with leopard geckos. And even though leopard geckos are great for beginners, like I said earlier, you can, as an advanced hobbyist, the genetics that we have and the, the, the genetic chess game, as I like to call it, is so intricate and so uh, interesting that it captivates the attention of uh, people that aren't just beginners. It's, you know, people that are advanced in the hobby because um, when, you, when you have this palette of different colors and patterns to work with, the sky's the limit. I mean, we have hundreds of combos now, but we are still in our infancy, and there's so much more that we can do. And folks, you can have your own vision 
on what you want to produce. And you can go out there and investigate, uh, well, Dave's got these beautiful purple ones and uh, Ron's got these awesome white ones. What if I put them together and make some really nice lavender color geckos? Or, uh, you know, Chris over here has red, reddish-orange geckos and, you know, Dave's got a really nice yellow one. Maybe I can make some really cool geckos from that combo. And you guys can design your own uh, your own projects. So there's a lot of that going on in the community. There's a lot of people coming coming forward with new uh, projects that they've been developing and new new looks. And uh, every once in a while, somebody gets lucky and hatches out a new morph too. And you never know that could be you. And God knows if you hit on some exciting new morph, uh, could be worth a lot of money. You never know. So. Hey David, I was, li I was listening to um, Gecko Nation Radio when you had Ron Tremper on. You guys were discussing a, a really cool um, piece in there about um, lineage and naming the lineage. And can you, can you tell tell our audience um, what it takes to actually name a specific lineage your own and how you guys really discuss that? Because it's not as simple as I bought Gecko from David, I bought Gecko from Ron, I bred them, so these offspring are now mine. Right. And right. these are the Tintle line, you know. And, and it's not as simple as that. Can you explain, you know, what goes on with that? Right. And, folks, if you want to hear that actual conversation, it was just a couple weeks back on uh, Gecko Nation Radio. But um, I don't remember the exact details of the conversation, and it's there's there's like a big gray area with this topic. Um, the bottom line, folks, you, it's James. You said it kind of kind of eloquently there. You know, if you buy a gecko from me and Ron, and you put them together, and next year you're calling them a completely new morph for a new line, number one, nobody's going to take you seriously. Number two, it's not the right thing to do. Uh, number three. It takes years to develop something, and in order to give it a good, give it its own name, um, it's really got to deserve that name. It's really got to stand alone. It's got to be different enough than other lines that it deserves a new title. Okay, and that's that's it in a nutshell. But there are a lot of people that are coming out with these new things and everybody's like well what's that and nobody's ever heard of it and but you know what they're as soon as they see them they're forgotten the next day anyway because there isn't anything significantly different than you know different about them than something else so uh, the tr you know what the, the community kind of uh, regulates that too like the real new projects or exciting things that deserve that title it'll stick like for instance um, let me let me see which one I can give you an example of. Well, in my own experience, okay, mm -hmm. um, I would never be so bold as to name one of my lines and and put it out there and say this is a new whatever, and because I'm just you know careful about it. But I do what I do have are projects, and um, I do have groups of geckos here that look different than other ones, you know, subtle enough that I put on the tub. This is my whatever project. And that's for my own records. So if you call it a project and you say, this is my, you know, yellow hornet project, for instance, if you're producing bright yellow geckos, um, 
it's kind of like the safe way to do it because you're not calling it a new morph. You're just giving it a project title. And what happened with me is I have these really, really nice uh, Bell albinos that I've been working on. And I've discovered that one of my males produces a unique jungle appearance. And uh, his name, I named him Van Gogh because he, he's got this Van Gogh pattern on his back. So people kind of, when I started selling them, I said, this is from my male Van Gogh. And so people kind of said these are Van Gogh bells, and it kind of got kind of stuck a little bit, and people call them Van Gogh bells now. And I didn't actually go out and name them that; it kind of just evolved that way. But they're they're cool enough where they're uh, you know kind of deserving of a little gimmick, so to speak. And I don't know; it's easy to distinguish you know Van Gogh bells sometimes because they look pretty cool. Um, so there's a lot more to it, though, folks. And I don't know. I would listen to what Ron said. Ron said it pretty good on the episode. He had some good insight in it. Because people have been doing this for years. He's seen it a million times. So. Absolutely. Right. And, and that's great information, too. And that goes across all boards, not only leopard geckos, but it goes across colubrid boards, too, as well. You guys and, see that a lot in colubrids? Yeah, um, we do, because you have people that spent many, many years refining the line, and, and we'll take, you know... Um, uh, Abbott Okatee corns, you know, yeah. and you, you just can't buy two Abbots, breed them together, and, and you know, call them such and such. It, it just doesn't happen. You have to go back lineage. I know in, in breeding colubrids, David, we do a lot of lineage back and forth. Do you find that you trace your lineages all the way to the original and keep those records and then pass those records on so we know, you know, really can follow where these animals were staged and came from from years ago and what, what group of original animals or what breeder it actually came from. Do you find oh it in uh, Leopard Gecko World too? Yes, I think that's very important. Um, I save all my receipts uh, for, you know, stuff that I got from Ron, Tremper, and uh, Marsha McGinnis and other people. Uh, some people don't give receipts. Some breeders that have really nice stuff just don't, you know, give receipts. And um, are you guys there? Can you hear me? Yeah, we can. Okay. Yeah, we got you. Okay. Uh, some people don't re give receipts, and it it can be a little um, difficult to keep track of. And that's where, um, like, knowing knowing the gecko game, as I call it. Uh, comes in handy because there is a lot of history of breeders that are even that are no longer on the scene that a lot that if you're going to take this seriously you're going to want to know and research and we talk a lot about that stuff on Gecko Nation Radio and uh, so that resource is there for you in fact if you were to listen to every episode of Gecko Nation Radio read Ron Tremper's book you would have a good grasp on keeping and breeding leopard geckos and the morphs and the genetics right now we've really gone out of our way to create, um, I guess, I don't know what you would call it, like an archive of just information that's essential to this. So take advantage of it. It's free, and it's out there for you guys. It's on. You can find the old episodes on iTunes, and uh, Steve and I, uh, my uh, news anchor, and he's also the person that does all the uh, technical stuff, we're going to be putting together uh, audio CDs uh, and MP MP3 CDs too, in the future that you guys can buy, and uh, you know keep these these shows because 
I, I believe in the future they will be sought after because um, the history of, of leopard geckos is fascinating if you're interested in it. Um, if you're not interested in it, it'll be like, you know, uh, you know, listening to another language, I guess. But <laughs> if you're trying to discover these these little uh, secrets and this, this information, we're, we're uncovering it every show. So, yeah. Now, how do you decide, uh, speaking of the morphs again, how do you decide what to breed? When it comes to morphs, I mean, what goes? What's David Swine Gecko's selection process in a nutshell? Without go, without yeah. obviously going into too much detail, because you know well, we don't want to give away the farm. Well, no, there's nothing to give away, really, though, John. It's basically I breed what I like, and um, I breed what I like, and it's it's basically it's I just got lucky that a lot of things that I like, other people like, so. Um, it's just it worked out that way. Um, I saw geckos that I liked, like bold stripes and bandits and lavenders, lavender albinos, and uh, I said, "All right, well, that's what I want to breed." And I worked. Uh, I'm working every year in per to perfect what I like, and that's that's what you folks need to do. You guys need to figure out what you like and and go from there. For sure. Now, what's your thoughts? Because I know um, some of the other uh, geckos that I see coming out now are the subspecies, uh, like Afghanicus and stuff like that. Is that something new to the hobby that's coming out now? Because I know those were the originators of leopard geckos, but now I'm seeing more of them come back. Is that something you're seeing as well? Yes, I'm definitely seeing that. I'm trying to get my camera working, guys. I don't know if it's on. Can you guys see me on your end? No, we see the you uh, can. All right, sorry about that. I don't know why this. No worries. Uh, I'm working on it. Um, <sighs> the subspecies, as we call them, and the the wild types are really important to leopard geckos, and uh, not only for their genetic purity in a lot of cases, but we use them for outcrossing. So these beautiful morphs that we have um, have been selectively bred for many generations. That sometimes we need to put new blood into them. And that's what we use them for in a lot of cases. But they, these, these subspecies and wild types it, are being worked on and perfected themselves too. So, uh, and to keep those lines going and those wild types going is important work. And a lot of people prefer to work with those other than the morphs. So, um, you know, it's it's basically. I don't know, it's just another avenue, another exciting part of leopard geckos that we have available to us. So, For sure. Yeah. So, James, you guys still awake over there? I've been doing all the talking. Sorry. <laughs> Every time I click my mic, because I don't have headphones on, you already have a question in hand. I actually was going to ask David, and I wrote it down on the paper here, I was actually going to ask David about the locality. Um, leopard geckos or, or the natural no morph leopard geckos and if they they are as popular as some of the morphs and I know breeding colubrids nowadays, king snakes, milk snakes, stuff like that. Locality, locality, locality is a lot of it's important. Um, yeah. It's very important to us. Yep. And, and you know, it it kinda we don't really look at the morphs now in the Kluber market as heavy as we did years ago. Do you find leopard geckos doing 
kind of the same thing where the morphs are getting pushed to the side and people are looking for the more naturalistic forms or no no I don't think they're getting pushed to the side at all I think what's what's happening is we just have a another another addiction <laughs> another you know type of gecko that we need to add to our collection <laughs> you know so now the other question I have David is uh, uh, what's your feelings on the mixing of subspecies? Um, well, I don't see any people actually mixing subspecies. Uh, I think people are keeping the different subspecies pure for the most part. Um, I'm sure it'd be interesting to mix an Afghanicus with a uh, Montanus and see what would happen. But at that point, it's just a mutt leopard gecko. It's nothing. It's not like a, mor a new morph or anything. Um, and I don't, in my opinion, I don't think it would have much dollar value. But as far as mixing the subspecies into some of the morph lines that we have, uh, I think that's beneficial in a sense because we're producing some really cool stuff. Uh, like John Scarborough at Gecko Boa Reptiles is producing some interesting tangerines that are mixed with Afghanicus, and they've got beautiful reddish orange and black, bold black markings in some cases. So, in that sense, it's it's definitely interesting, and I would think it's something that people should definitely do and see what happens. But we shouldn't le we shouldn't lose those pure wild types either. And there's a lot of people that are very responsible and very dedicated to keeping them pure. So we're not gonna we're no in no jeopardy of losing them. That's for sure. So you're basically okay if you take the morphs and mix it into the subspecies to create different colors, different patterns, different stuff like that. But you still want people to be able to keep the the, the pure bloodlines. And, and James, I'm very open-minded, and I can appreciate both. And I definitely understand the purity aspects, and I can definitely understand the mixing uh, benefits too. So, yeah. Okay, I, you know, I just kind of wanted to see where your stance was on there. So it really doesn't bother you one way or the other. Um, it, it's pretty much to uh, personal responsibility on, on what that individual breeder likes to do. Yeah, pretty much. But like I said, it's very important that um, to know that we have people that would never do that, never mix them, because we never want to lose them. We need people to be stewards to those types of... Uh, um, wild types and localities and make sure that they don't become polluted or diluted. So. Right. Now, and, and I'm not, I, I just have one more question on this because this is a huge controversial um, thing for us colubrid breeders and, and I hate to go back to it and, you know, is the mixing of the wild types. Years ago, all the morphs drew all the money, and, and I would imagine that leopard gecko is pretty much the same way. The prettier the morph, the more money it is. The rarer the morph, the more money it is. And culprits were the same way. The natural morph, the natural animal, no morphs attached, no amel, no mutant genes, they all went to five, ten, fifteen dollar snakes. Um, do you see that happening with? the natural leopard geckos as well. Are they the cheaper end of the snake, or cheaper end of the leopard geckos? And if so, how does it, how, do, how does a breeder that believes in purity of the animals and continuing that line, how do they um, look at it in, in a business aspect to say, 
well, if I have to feed this animal the same amount, take care of this animal the same amount, but I'm only getting this amount for my offspring. But if I go and take this fancy morph and bring it back, I'm making seven, eight, ten times what I can make off of this. Do you see that happening in leopard gecko market as well? Well, right now, the wild types are, in some cases, much more expensive than the morphs with leopard geckos. Oddly enough, it seems reversed for in the snake world, which, which I feel is unfortunate. Um, I see impressive, beautiful chain kings, just common chain kings that are just amazing. And you would think, like, well, why? And it's only 10 or $15. I think that's insulting, honestly. I think it's insulting that uh, these normal, so-called normal, everyday types have become so cheap. And it's a little different with leopard geckos because uh, these pure wild types are hard to find because <laughs> you can't go to Afghanistan and without risking getting your head cut off to get them. So they're much more appreciated appreciated here, these wild-type leopard geckos. And I would love to see, like, natural uh, California king snakes, you know, get a good price. In fact, James, I think that herpetoculture in general, things are way undervalued totally undervalued like some of these morphs that we're working on are you know going for a hundred bucks two hundred dollars the years and years of work and dedication that went into making these morphs and these animals is just forgotten about like people come on the scene and they don't even know what went into producing them and um, you know some of these animals are going for way too too cheap uh, prices and that's that's where I I think there's a big problem uh, things have really become undervalued, and I think if if this did ever become mainstream, all those ten fifteen dollar snakes would become very valuable because there wouldn't be enough of them anymore. Like right now, we have a surplus of reptiles. We wouldn't if this was mainstream. If everybody out there, if every breeder out there did their due diligence to get more people that aren't even interested in reptiles involved in herpetoculture right now. We would double, triple, quadruple, exponentially grow this to the point where we wouldn't have enough animals to supply everybody. And I think reptiles would then command the prices they deserve all around. But to answer your question specifically, the wild-type leopard geckos in, in some cases are more expensive than the morphs because of the rarity of them. And, you, you, and anybody listening wants to check out some of that, go on geckoboa.com and, and look at some of the wild types John's making. Uh, they're they're quite incredible. I have a few here. I I breed the uh, uh, Afghanicus, and I have um, what do I have? What's the other one? Oh, I'm drawing a blank right now. Oh, Fasciolatus. Uh, that, those are the two that I work with. I like the Fasciolatus because they're large and heavy-bodied, and kind of just add a lot of good strength and robustness to you know a line that needs outcrossing. But then I also breed them for their purity too. So I'll have a number of them available soon too if anybody's looking for them. But yeah, that's how I feel about that, James. What do you guys think? Yeah, you know, I agree with you, definitely. Um, <clears throat> a lot of the natural types do get a bad rap, in my opinion. Um, we do see a lot a lot of the morphs. And that's what I've seen, too, with the leopard geckos, is they are coming, the natural ones are coming back. And it's interesting to me with a lot of the more, well, a lot of species that are used to create morphs, um, I see it doing the same thing, where 
Jameson uh, was talking about the natural patterns and the lineages are beginning to matter a lot more, it seems, as far as, you know, what the natural, not natural history, but the, I guess, the captive history, is that what you would call it, James? Uh, you know, for example, your coffee line aberrant, you know, there was one person working with that, and, you know, ten years later, you picked it up, and you're the only one producing it, to my knowledge. Actually, actually, there's a few people producing them, but he's got 20 years. I mean, he's been working on 20, 25 years, and it's line breeding. And, uh, you know, I pick up uh, a trio three years ago, and uh, I produce them, you know, four years later. So, you know, in my fourth year, I'm producing what took him 25 years to produce. But, and I know how that goes, but it's all basics of uh, parental lineage, knowing where the parents came from. You bought this animal from this guy, you bought this animal from this guy, and going back from those breeders as well, too. So I recommend across the board in herpetoculture, when you buy an animal, ask the breeder, where'd the parents come from? Where'd the grandparents come from? Have you been producing this line for, you know, X amount of years, or did you buy it from somebody? And if they bought it from somebody, track that person down and find the lineage from that person. I mean, there's snakes in my collection that I bought, you know, off a off a table in, at a show, and I wound up tracing it all the way back to the 1970s. So, you know, I can trace the parental lineage of that animal, you know, 30, 40 years back. And, and you know, that's very appreciative because I know where that animal came from. So... Yeah. Parental lineages are, are very important. Now, as far as uh, breeding is concerned, David and James can both speak to this in chat as well, actually. Um, David, take us through a day in the routine of, you know, David's fine geckos with a thousand geckos to take care of, plus, you know, the Gecko Nation radio project that you got going on, you know, advertising, you know, how do you pull it all off? What, how do you, you know, do you start at like 2 a.m. or what? Wow, it's crazy here. Actually. <laughs> <laughs> um, if anybody tries to do this on a full full time basis, uh, and and just breed hundreds or thousands of animals, it will definitely consume your life. Uh, in order to do all of that and everything else that life entails, just to survive today, it it takes it'll test you, and it will definitely make you stronger if you pull it off and if you stick with it. If you are the type that kind of just, I don't know, that can't handle it, or maybe, you know, you, you come upon times where you just can't afford to do it, uh, you won't last. I mean, it takes endurance and stamina, I'll, I'll tell you. And when I start, I'll just tell you what I do. When I start in the morning, I get up around 11 o'clock in, in the morning, sometimes earlier, but I am up till 4 o'clock in the morning working, okay, because... You know, I got a few hours of sleep and that's it. I got to get back up. I got to feed. I got to clean. I got to go online. I got people asking me questions all day long. I have, um, you know, to schedule things for the radio show. And it's, I don't know. It's really, but I would, you know what? I'm not complaining about it. It's just what I do. I And you know what? It consumes so much of my day that I don't have time to worry about things. I don't have time to, um, you know, I don't know what the words for it is. Like, if you're if you're bored and you don't have anything to do, you know they say that's the devil's workshop, and you you know you start people get like depressed and stuff or whatever. Yeah. This keeps, this keeps me so busy 
that I don't have time for any of that usually. I just, yeah. you know, I'm bit, I gotta feed these geckos. I gotta make sure I gotta collect eggs today. I gotta do that. I got and normally any spare time I have, I'm building rack systems to keep up with the flow of what I'm doing because I'm in like a growth period here. Like I'm kind of transitioning to the next level. So I, I can't, in order to keep going, I have to constantly build a new rack every week or so. And it's, it's tough, man. But like I said, it's, I'm having the time of my life right now. Now, David, do you, do you work a, uh, another job as well as the geckos or are you just full-time geckos right at the moment? Right now, I, the other job that I work is I'm a, a sales rep and consultant for uh, FlexWatt Heat Tape. I work for Calorique. Um, as you guys know, FlexWatt is the safest, uh, most energy efficient, and most advanced heat tape out there. i uh, got a couple imitation knockoff brands out there. Watch out for those guys. Make sure you're buying the USA FlexWatt. It's the inventor of heat tape. So, um, yeah, I, I'm, I'm very, just very honored to represent a product that helped grow this industry. And uh, we definitely wouldn't be here without FlexWatt today, the way we are. And um, got some exciting, really exciting things coming up for FlexWatt. And uh, one thing that's coming soon is a FlexWatt YouTube channel. So I'm going to be able to uh, launch that within the next couple of weeks. So stay tuned, folks. But for the product itself, there's some really cool uh, things coming coming through from Calorique with FlexWatt. So that's going to be cool to announce. But um, other than that, James, uh, right now it's the geckos, it's FlexWatt, and uh, some side things with rentals that I do. Um, but I was a I was a full-time private investigator, and uh, I was working for a big company, and uh, they got bought out by a European company, and wound up laying off a lot of the original employees because they wanted to bring new people in and train them their way. They didn't like the way we were trained by the old owner. It was interesting. So they laid off a lot of the guys, and uh, I stuck it out the longest. I was one of the last ones to be laid off. But when they finally laid me off, I decided, you know, all right, well, I could go back to work and do insurance fraud investigation, or I can try to pursue, uh, you know, my dream. And and that's what I did. And I set out to do it uh, 150%. Great, and we commend you for that too. I mean, that that's a huge jump. Um, being an entrepreneur, John knows it. You know, being an entrepreneur. I mean, yeah, it's hard, but it's good. You work it's seven hard. days a week, twenty-four hours a day. There's not a single day that you have off. And, right. and in this day and age with technology, it's even harder because you can't go anywhere without being contacted from somebody or or, or something. But you know what, James? The flip side to that. I'll get hit up in the morning at 2 o'clock by somebody that sees a gecko that I have for sale, and they'll be like, Dave, is this one still available? If I don't respond to that personal message, they're off looking at the next breeder's page. So a lot of my sales occur between 12 a.m. and 4 a.m. in the morning, believe it or not. Is that crazy or what? That's wild. So that's technology helping business too. So. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Now, David, as far as um – just kind of wrapping this up a little bit, what would you say is the most satisfying element of working with geckos on a personal level for you? Hmm. Watching watching my projects evolve every year and seeing and dreaming about what's going to happen next year or uh, waiting for that egg to hatch and, and wondering what's inside of it and what's going to pop out of there. That's That's the most satisfying for me, actually, yeah. 
and of course, you know, everything. I don't know, John. I everything. I love everything about this. You know, I love, I love the radio show. I love what we're doing right now. I love having these conversations with other like-minded people. I love the Facebook group, Gecko Nation. I love everything about the community that we're in. It's just, it's just an. I think it's an amazing time to be involved in herpetoculture. It really is. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. It's definitely evolving every day. Um, James and I see it as well every every day. Like you said, you know, it's just constantly evolving and changing, growing. Now, what's the hardest part about being successful in herpeticulture, in your opinion? Well, I guess, I don't know. I wouldn't say that, I, I don't want to, I don't know how to put it, but I, I don't think I'm, a, like, totally uh, successful to where I want to be. I think I've had some successes, I'll put it that way. Um, but I think, I, it's that's a trick question because I think like um, I don't think I, I'm never happy I guess where where I'm at right now I just want to keep doing more like you know I, there's always more well what can I do next to like I started with YouTube then I went to you know Facebook and now radio what else can I do you know so Dave do you find yourself looking at possibly employing people with David's Fine Geckos? I mean, you stated that you were in a growth uh, atmosphere of the business-wise now and growing. Do you see yourself coming to a point where you're either going to have to outsource something, stop something, or hire some employees to actually help out with the day-to-day -day routine of feeding, you know, cleaning, watering, collecting eggs? Do you see yourself anytime in the future having to do that, or have you already? I don't know who I would trust to do that for me. That would, that's going to do it the way I do it. Um, I have such a eccentric and OCD way of doing things that I think somebody that would last an hour and they quit just because I try to do things like, I don't know, I'm just like super neat, organized, and just, I don't know. It's kind of like, hard to describe it's it, it act you know what put it this way if things are out of place I get really upset if things are um, you know like disorganized it bothers me and I to tell you the truth if I had a if I get any bigger I would need somebody to help me I really would but I, I would rather it be like instead of hiring someone I would rather ideally team up with someone team up with another breeder that I could trust team up with someone that knows this like I know it and from there grow a little bit but then part of me James is like well you know the bigger you get the less attention to the animals that you know you get and then you start become a generic breeder you start pumping out you know like you know cheaper geckos and stuff like that and I don't know I like doing things the way I'm doing I, I, I'll have to get back to you on that full question I'm not, <laughs> much, I'm not really sure but right now, I'm growing. That's that's all I know. So. Yeah. Well, and the reason I ask because my collection grew, you know, tenfold, whatever, and you know, you just get kind of get to a point where you have you have to market your business, you have to market your animals, you have to answer emails, and then of course we do YouTube, radio shows, stuff like that. Mm -hmm. So, you know, you kind of get to a point where you're like, okay, I have X amount of time 
you know, for the animals. And, and the only reason I was asking was because you said you were in a growth period. And, you know, sometimes we just have to cap those animals, you know, and, and work with specific lines and, you know, let other people build on what we created and let them build on to that instead of, you know, continuing evolving all our projects. And I think that's where the, the point that I am at right now is where I'm like, okay, I have these projects, but I also have tons more that I have actually invested in three or four years ago that are now coming up to being able to be bred. And of course, yours is a little bit more short term. It's only a year, 18 months to get them breeding. Mine's three to four year investment. But, you know, I just kind of get to a point where, you know, I had somebody ask me today, so what do you, you're going to Daytona this weekend. What are you going to buy? What are you looking for? And I'm like, nothing. Um, I'm not into buying anything anymore. And uh, actually, right now, I'm looking at some of the projects that I really wanted to get into. I raised up to adults. And I'm like, there's other people working with them. Maybe these are the ones that I should pass on and, and let let somebody else work on, you know, because they are are a little bit more, you know, involved in that project. So I know I've let go of a couple projects over the past two or three years because there was good breeders working with those, and I didn't want to compete against them. I'd much rather just send, you know, clients of mine that were asking to those breeders. So. Um, it's kind of what I'm asking. It was just kind of on a, a business level or where you stood and trying to get your insight on that. Um, I think, though, yeah, if I keep – by next year, though, if I if I grow as much as I did this year, next year, there's no way I'd be able to handle it all by myself, put it that way. So I, if this keeps going the way it's going, and, uh, and that all depends if the sales, you know, keep happening the way they do and if the econ economy uh, allows – the sales to happen, uh, then I'd have to make some more considerations, yeah. But, you know, I, I wish I could team. I'm the kind of guy that works good in a team, and I would rather, instead of doing it all by myself, I would wish I wish I could, um, I wish I had a friend out here that was as dedicated as I am that I could team up with, you know. But I, I just, there's none of my friends are even interested in reptiles, so. Right. <laughs> those things. And I've pushed it on them, too. I've tried, so. I have one other question for you, David. I see you online all the time. I see you on Facebook. Of course, I've seen your YouTube channel and probably watched half of the 255 videos or 239 videos you have on YouTube. But um, I have another question. Do you actually do any reptile shows? And, and, and what are your feelings? I mean, we have Daytona, probably the, one of the oldest you know, reptile shows, and, and at one time, the biggest reptile show. Do you do reptile shows? And, um, Yes, yeah, I do. I do two of them. I do uh, the New York White Plains show, which is an awesome show. You guys can get there. It's next month. I think it's September. It's the first Sunday in September uh, next month. And I also do the Hamburg, uh, Pennsylvania show, which is uh, venomous and non-venomous animals. It's pretty impressive. Uh, very Two very well-known shows. I don't do a lot of the smaller shows um, only because it's, I don't know, I just don't have the time for it in... Um, it's, you know, I just, I'd rather just do uh, two shows and focus on that. But, um, so yeah, but I do love, I love expos. I think expos are great. And uh, the only thing is, I think we have them too often. I think when I was a kid, we had the, uh, we had one show a year and everybody would sell out of everything. And uh, I think the shows today are just like every other weekend, there's a show somewhere and 
I think that kind of takes away from the whole thrill of going to the show a little bit, you know? But, I don't know. Makes, we'll see. Absolutely, and I agree totally. And, um, I, you know, I kind of toned it down where I'm looking at doing maybe, you know, I typically vend at Daytona. This year I'm not vending. Um, I'm going, but... Uh, uh, you know, I'm looking at the bigger shows, maybe just Daytona, Tinley Park, and maybe the Super Show out in California. Yeah. Um, just kind of do the bigger shows, and that's it. And I agree with you. You know, a show every weekend. I live in Florida, and I can tell you within six months, there's a show at least once a month, if not twice a month, for six months straight throughout from August through to December. Wow. And yeah. But... Uh, you know, it is what it is, and I agree there. I, I have one more question for you. Sure. What are the bi biggest risks in um, getting involved in creating um, either a, a breeding business or even just kind of getting into the industry and, and evolving into a business? Because I know a lot of us looked at it as a hobby, and then it all of a sudden came into a more business atmosphere. What are the biggest risks? involved in the industry as far as you're concerned? Um, well, I would consider, I wouldn't consider myself in any of the bigger parts of the industry. Uh, so I would be in the smaller sections of just private breeding. But, um, you know, some of the risks in becoming a breeder, from my perspective, I guess would be um, not getting a return on your investment. And I think, I think we're all, in a way, responsible for that. I think uh, the return you get reflects what you put into it, and um, in a lot of ways, you know, a lot of people come into this and they don't really market themselves, they don't create a brand, and they kind of just, what we're seeing right now is we're seeing a lot of people that buy a few geckos and they make a, a Facebook business, but it's not a real business, and, uh, you know, they call themselves ABC Geckos, and they, they market their geckos to the same group of people, but they're not really trying to expand and grow their brand and advertise and do any of that. So we have the same, you know, some of my, and I think it's great that everybody does this, by the way. I think it's just part of it. You know, you got to start somewhere. But I see what, I, what we're seeing is we're seeing a lot of the same people that have bought geckos for myself and other breeders now breeding those geckos and uh, kind of selling them to the same group of customers. And we, I think we need to encourage people to um, expand outside of Facebook and grow their brand, advertise, and get it to the point where they're attracting their own customer base instead of um, custo you know, the same customer base that's already in the same area, kind of, so to speak. I mean, but I'm not, I'm not a business uh, expert or a marketing expert. I'm still trying to figure all that out myself. So that's just kind of what I see at this stage of my development. But um, the, the risks are, I think it's like anything else. You get uh, out of this what you put into it. If you, I mean, just so for an example, in order for me to, to be at where I am now, I had to work on getting that YouTube channel. I just hit, tw it just hit 10,000 subscribers just yes, uh, two days ago. Um, I do a radio show. I run a, f a Facebook group. Um, do all kinds of things out there that I'm, you know, involved in. And I have to do all that in order to keep things going. So you guys out there that are thinking about this, you know, you may want to consider following that example and, and you know, do all that kind of stuff. 
you know, but be creative. You know, do your own things too. I would think. So. Yeah, no coattail learning. Yeah, everybody's different. So, um, you want to be different. You don't want to be exact. You don't want to copy everything I'm doing. I got enough people trying to copy me. Um, do things the way you know. Try to be original and do your own thing, and you know, attract attention. And I don't know, just be bold and be brave and do it. Do it to the best of your ability. That's what I would say. Right. Now, as far as reptile litigation and its effect on the industry, does it have any impact on the gecko breeding or any of the projects that you're doing, or do you think it will have an impact? Uh, I think it will eventually, but I don't think anybody in the gecko world is taking it seriously because um, they're, they're like, oh, they'll never outlaw leopard geckos. And uh, I'm smart enough to know that that's, that's definitely could happen. Um, right. You know, they, could, they could take away dogs and cats eventually if they want. Um, so... Yeah, I, I, I try to – I don't want to be like a doom and gloomer either, so I don't push it too hard. But when things come around like the RAACA thing and, uh, you know, the U.S. Art Fundraising event, <coughs> I try to help spread the word about that, encourage people to uh, get involved. So, yeah. But, yeah, there's a fine line. You don't want to scare people away either with all the doom and gloom stuff. So, you know. But there is a real threat to the herpetoculture, and it should be taken seriously. For sure. And on that same note, David, um, what do you think the future holds for the industry and yourself as far as uh, herpetoculture is concerned? Well, I know how I'd like it to go, but <laughs> how does it, it never, life never goes the way we, we expect. But uh, I don't know, John, seriously. I, I, don't, I don't really want to make any predictions, but... I'll tell you, I'll t I could say this, some days I wake up really um, worried about it and you know, thinking that things could change, you know, to not to our liking. And then other days I'm very positive and I'm like, oh, we're totally going to, we're totally going to take this and we're totally going to keep it. And uh, so it's kind of, I think we all go through those kind of phases, but. I think we're gonna. I think we're gonna. We're gonna fight it. In the end, we're gonna fight it, and we're gonna keep it. I think. Right. Right. And uh, James, you want to uh, ask the uh, famous question, or should we have Chad do it? Or actually, I don't know. Does Chad want to do it tonight? How you doing? Yeah. There you go, man. All right. Read it. It's the last one on the on the sheet. Hey. You don't have to read it. You can just ask it. If money and laws. No. <laughs> Great <laughs> laws were taken out of the equation, and uh, you could pick just one species to work with. What would it be? Um, I would still stay with my leopard geckos. Yeah, definitely. Very cool. Wow, That's really? Like, no other species? <laughs> I'm like shocked. I'm like. Um, well. I mean, I understand you love your leopard geckos. I mean, I love my tricolor snakes, but there's always that one species where I'm like, wow. All right. Well, let me tell you, let me say it this way. If I, but but you know what? Even if it was like, if I could, my second choice of you know my bucket list animal would be two ataras. I love two ataras. Okay, um, there we go. All right, but I don't know. I you know I, I may get bored with two ataras after a couple of years because they all look the same with the leopard geckos. <laughs> With the leopard geckos, it's constantly evolving. My projects are constantly changing. It's like a genetic chess game, and it's so 
engaging and in, involved. I, I don't know. That's that's half the fun. So it's a tough call. I know I know what you're saying though. Like you know why wouldn't you pick something more more rare or something? But it, leopard geckos has a stranglehold on me right now. They do. You know, David, honestly, I think that is probably one of the most honest answers I've ever heard in regards to that question. It's simply because it is a genetic chess game, and there's so, there's, like you said, the possibilities are just stinking endless. We're just getting started, and we have, and we have a, an amazing template to work with, and we're yeah. just getting, we're, the possibilities are literally endless. In 10 years, we could have fluorescent blue geckos. I mean, that's the way some of these geckos are going. We have glowing pink and red geckos now. And in 10 or 20 years, it could be incredible. Seriously. No kidding. Yeah. So. Man. <laughs> well, David, uh, I, for one, appreciate you being on the show. It's been an, uh, a great pleasure. I've learned a ton of uh, stuff I didn't know about leopard geckos. Um, it's an honor to be with you guys. Thank you. Thanks so much. Uh, James, any final words uh, from our Florida side over there? I know you guys are going to the Daytona, jerks. <laughs> <laughs> hey, come on, man. Somebody's got to stay back at the office and hold down the fort. Hey, it's a business trip. It's research. <laughs> um, you know, I'm working, okay? Right, right. <laughs> Hey, I'm not working this show. I'm going for all play this time around. Yeah, you true. You do deserve that, though. You do. Uh, I'm going to take tons of pictures, tons of videos. Everybody can look forward to my article in Herp House Magazine coming up. That's herphousemag.com. I'm going to cover every aspect I possibly can of Daytona. So it's going to be a, a definite picture, probably video-filled article. Um John definitely doesn't give me enough time to write it. <laughs> it's halfway in the month, and I have to have it done in 14 days. Oh, well, you know. Uh, I'm going to try to put that one out. And then, uh, John, I I'm going to make you work Sunday morning because I'm going to have a, a short-term article for Daytona review um, in your inbox Saturday night before I go. Awesome. I don't know how well written it may be because uh, we all know what happens at Daytona stays at Daytona. Exactly. So anyway, yeah, I was going to study the after show um, <laughs> aspect of it. <laughs> oh man! So David, I appreciate you coming on. You've been a great guest, and uh, I definitely appreciate all your insights on leopard geckos. Considering leopard geckos was my first lizard I ever kept um, as I started out, and you know, I, I've learned a lot of things about it that I didn't know back then. Yeah, so anytime. I'd be happy to come on anytime and. Uh, it's been a real pleasure and honor to be with you guys, James and uh, Chad and John. Seriously, it's been a great time. Awesome, man. Thanks very much, and uh, happy World Lizard Day to you, sir. Happy and uh, look forward to, you, to uh, many more morphs coming out of David's Flying Geckos. Absolutely. And once again, folks, it's davidsflyinggeckos.com. Uh, it'll all be in the show notes. Gecko Nation Drop Radio. By. Check us out. There you go, Gecko Nation Radio this Sunday. Uh, do you have your guests lined up for Sunday? I haven't. I got on Facebook in like two days, so I haven't I haven't been updated on the show yet. We actually had a cancellation, so I'm actually uh, somebody had a death in their family, and I'm I'm actually working, oh, wow. on, working on filling that spot. So whatever we do, it'll be fun. And oh, you, it always is. And you it guys are scheduled is. to come on the show in like a month, I think. I I, I was looking at the schedule, so. Yeah, um, yeah, we are. So yeah, so we got that to look forward to as well. So. Awesome. 
Cool. Thanks again, David. Greatly Anytime. appreciated. All right, guys. Take care. Take care. All right. Take care, everybody. Have a good night. Catch you next week, 9 o'clock.